Thank you for your patience and understanding as we are finally able to meet together a little bit different than normal, or a lot a bit different than normal, but I hope that you are blessed by this. It is, I know for myself, it is so good to see you. <laughs> and so I've I missed so much being together with you all, and so we're excited, even in this limited fashion, to be able to gather and worship. Question for you. What are you tolerating in your life right now? What are you putting up with? Obviously, we're all having to tolerate continued restrictions from this lockdown. You might feel that you're tolerating the hot temperatures now that summer has arrived. If you don't feel that yet, you will by the end of this service. You may feel that, well, we're tolerating the differing beliefs or actions or behaviors of people that live around us. But I wonder, when I ask this question, how many of us think of external things that we tolerate while not even thinking about internal things, things inside of us? Right? So maybe ask yourself, what am I tolerating or putting up with in myself, and are there things that I shouldn't be tolerating in myself? Or thinking corporately, is there anything in our church that we shouldn't be tolerating? Because yes, we should tolerate many things outside of ourselves, leaving it to the Lord to judge, but we shouldn't tolerate evil or sin in our own hearts or our own church. It's like we can tolerate Brussels sprouts. We cannot tolerate poison. And that's the issue that we'll see Jesus raise today for a first century church that I believe can strike many similarities to today's church. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation 2 with me. If you don't have one, there's none in the seats right now. We took them out so you don't spread germs by the Bible. And so... If you can easily find one on your phone through Google or an app, that's great. So Revelation 2, we'll turn there together and meet the church from the ancient city of Thyatira. Thyatira. Of the seven cities with churches that Jesus sent messages to in Revelation, Thyatira was the least known, least important, least remarkable of all of them. But regardless of worldly significance, they were important to Jesus. Every church, whether it's mega or tiny, famous or unknown, matters to him. Thyatira was this blue-collar commercial town, uh, a manufacturing and trading hub with heavy dealings in wool, linen, leather, bronze, pottery, clothing, shoes, and dyes. It had a, a large network of trade guilds and labor unions that greatly influenced daily life. These trade guilds are gatherings of like-minded traders or business people. And these guilds shaped much of social life, and business life, financial life. The guilds even shaped much of religious life in Thyatira, as each guild had its own patron deity and feasts of celebration together. The main god worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo, or Helios, the, the sun god, believed to be the son of Zeus, 
the supreme God of their pantheon. Now that's important because look how Jesus describes himself in his introduction. Okay, we're starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. These are Jesus' words. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, in all of the opening addresses so far, Jesus has highlighted an aspect or two from the original vision back in chapter 1 of the exalted Christ. And it's the same here with the eyes like fire and the feet like bronze. But... His title of Son of God wasn't there in chapter 1. This is the first time he adds something to the original picture. Why? Well, think about it. Jesus is like, your city is convinced that Apollo is the Son of God. But he's not. I am the true and only Son of the true and only God. His title, Son of God, conveyed majesty and divinity and authority. So Jesus has his authority over all alleged gods or sons of gods. And this Son of God, as it says back in chapter 1, just reading a couple verses here, says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. So for Thyatira, Jesus focuses in on his eyes and his feet. You may recall what the symbolism of, of fire and bronze referred to. Fire illuminates and penetrates darkness. It consumes and purifies, burns away impurities in a refiner's fire. So Jesus' eyes being like a flame of fire tells us that he, he sees with penetrating, purifying perception. He sees everything. Our thoughts, our motives, the darkest corners, deepest secrets. Nothing we say or think or feel or do escapes his sight. He sees it all, and yet he still loves us. He wants to burn away any bad in us. His eyes are like a, a laser beam probing a body, not just to explore it, but to heal. And then the bronze feet represented strength and stability. I mentioned that this is meant to contrast with King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, where all the mightiest empires of the ancient world were described as having feet of iron mixed with clay, and then they crumble. And in contrast, King Jesus has feet of firm, burnished bronze, already refined and strengthened by a furnace. He's unshakable. So, why emphasize these truths for Thyatira? Well, for one, furnaces and bronze work were both quite prevalent in their city. So this was just imagery that made a lot of sense to the people there. But specifically for believers, their church had some dark corners that needed cleaning out. They needed to be reminded that Jesus was both aware of everything going on and that he was intent on purifying them even through judgment. 
But they also need to be reminded that they could trust him. Right? Throughout this all, like everything else in life could be shaken, but not him. Imagine just being at the church in Thyatira and being told, listen up! Like Christ, the Son of God, he's speaking right now. He has the, the fiery power to see and know everything about us, and he has the stable power to, to rule and judge and outlast every other power on earth. It's a powerful picture. And then Jesus begins with something very encouraging about this church. And what we're going to learn is this. Christ speaks to spur his church on in increasing faithfulness. And Christ speaks to spur his church on in or toward increasing faithfulness. Look what he says, verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Now that is quite the list of strengths, right? They had a happening, hardworking, fruitful, faithful church. It says, I know your works. I know everything good you're doing. It's great. What kind of works? Well, that's the rest of the list. I know your love. Agape love here. This is what the Ephesian church, if you remember, had lost. They hadn't. The Thyatirans, the Thyatirans loved God. They, they loved one another. They loved their neighbors. Like, so they had the most important thing of all for a church to have. They loved well. And I know your faith, their belief in God and trust in the gospel was strong. And their faith was active. It was backed up by their love and good works. Like James said, right? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. They had this down pat. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. So they were faithful servants of God and his church. They, they gave of themselves sacrificially and joyfully to meet other people's needs. They gave of their time, their wisdom, their energy, their talents, their gifts. They're, I know your service. And then I know your patient endurance or perseverance. They persisted and endured even when the going got tough. They kept on keeping on. So these believers were loyal, patient, loving, dependable. I summed it up as faithful. And this is what every church should aspire to be like, to look like. And that wasn't at all. It wasn't all. Look, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, they weren't slacking off feeling like they had arrived. They were growing in their faithfulness. They're constantly improving. Like their, their first love that they had, that had steadily increased. Their, their faith had grown stronger. Their service had multiplied. Their perseverance had intensified. Your latter works exceed the first. It's worth considering 
has your faithfulness to God been increasing over time? And if not, and if this verse would not describe you, then we might rightly hear a rebuke in it. And we should absolutely, and we need to be growing in our faith. If we're not growing, we're stagnating, or worse, backsliding. But Jesus' main purpose here wasn't to rebuke, right? It was to commend Thyatira. It was to cheer them on. So if any or all of these things can describe us, even in small or developing ways, praise God for that. Praise God. If you want to grow or you want to make sure you're growing, what I would tell you today is don't just muster up like the willpower to do so today because these are not things that we develop on our own because we're so great. Really, these are all fruits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our, our love is birthed out of his love for us, most vividly displayed on the cross. Our faith is in Christ himself and him alone. Belief, trust in his, in his death and resurrection. Our service is inspired by Christ becoming a servant on our behalf. And our patient endurance is, is spurred on when we see Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame, and, and then being seated at the Father's right hand in glory. See, our works as a whole, our works are only righteous because Jesus' works were perfectly righteous. And because he then sent his Spirit to work in and through us. So how do we increase in this faithfulness? How can our latter works exceed the first? Well, start by soaking in the gospel and by preaching it to ourselves constantly, pouring over its riches in the word of God where Christ speaks to spur us on and letting it seep into our pores. It should also be relying on the Spirit's power, praying that we would be growing to be like him. Pray for this. Listen to what Paul praise for a church in Colossians 1. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. The gospel, bearing fruit and increasing. May that ever be true of us. One last, last thought here from verse 19. If God himself will recognize us for works like this, it should eliminate the need to get recognition from other people. Like, Listen, it's not my approval or my gratitude that you should be after. What could I actually give you? And it's not your recognition or or your appreciation that I should be after. these, These are totally wrong motives. But for God to see and to know and to remarkably appreciate us, That should be enough.
Now, up till now, Jesus has simply commended his church. But I said that he speaks to spur on his church, to spur his church on, to stimulate further growth. And that's because he again encourages his faithful people down in verse 24. Just skip down with me for a minute. Verse 24, he says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, those faithful people, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, we're going to get to that, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And then look at the way believers in Thyatira would be able to conquer in verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nation. So keeping my works till the end. I hold fast what you have. You have love and faith and service and perseverance. And you keep growing in that. Keep it up. Keep my works until the end. That's faithfulness. So consider what you must do today to hear Jesus' call and have him reinvigorate your faithfulness. Christ is speaking, even now, to spur us on to love and good works. Thyatira was thriving here. You're doing great. And yet, there was one major, major problem. As Chuck Swindoll says, there was a dark spot of cancerous sin eating away from the inside. If you had a cancer eating away at you, as hard as it is to hear, you'd want to know. Right? So you can get treated for it. So you can potentially get healed from it. If we have a cancer in us, if we have a cancer inside our church, we need to know. And this is the point we'll see. Christ speaks to not just commend and, and encourage his church to spur them on. He speaks to stop his church from continuing to compromise. Christ speaks to put a stop to his church's ongoing compromise. Okay, listen to Jesus' complaint from verse 20. It says, But I have this against you. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is similar to what we saw last week in Pergamum. But there was apparently some woman in the church in Thyatira with charisma and influence who claimed to speak for God. She called herself a prophetess, and yet whose teachings were antithetical to God's truth says she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So her teaching was encouraging compromise. Of course, it was an attractive idea. As in Pergamum, it'd make things easier, it'd make things more pleasurable, uh, you could keep your social standing, you'd fit in, you'd keep, people would still like you. <laughs> You can keep your business running. You can keep your financial income and security. And, and I don't need to explain to, to red-blooded adults why sex appealed to them. And this woman was winning people over to her view, her views. Jesus says she was seducing people. And he singles out this woman and, and calls her Jezebel. Not likely her real name, by the way. 
See, Jezebel was an infamous Old Testament queen in the times of Elijah, seemingly the most wicked queen in Israel's history. Deceptive, devious, idolatrous, immoral, violent, murderous, you name it. Once she was a Phoenician princess, but she had married into Israel, into the marrying the evil Ahab, the king of Israel. But she clearly held most of the power in their relationship, in their palace. The Bible concludes, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. Jezebel systematically tried to slaughter all of God's prophets, including Elijah. She once murdered a guy just because her husband wanted his vineyard. And over her reign, Jezebel diligently sought to ingrain Baal worship into Israelite culture. See, she basically decreed that, well, you can worship Yahweh and Baal right alongside each other. But God said, listen, remember, you shall have no other gods before me. And when God sent Elijah, they think there's no compromise here. And Elijah had to keep asking people, like, how long are you going to go limping or wavering between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Like, you can't have it both ways. How long are you going to sit on the fence? Likewise, in Thyatira, the new Jezebel was creating a bunch of fence-sitters. She was saying that you can have it both ways. That participating in ungodly activities would not affect your faith in God. That you could play with fire and never get burnt. Remember how the commercial guilds were so influential in Thyatira. It's likely that, that one couldn't really maintain a livelihood without being in a guild. You just wouldn't have the goodwill, the business connections, the social cred. But to be a member of a guild meant participating in all guild activities, including idolatry, which was like inbuilt into their system. And in all probability, Jezebel was teaching that there was nothing wrong with this. After all, no, idols are nothing. Idols are nothing, then these ceremonies are ultimately meaningless if you think about it. So you're not going to destroy your faith. Do what you got to do to make a living. Notice how this woman did this. How she's able to persuade Christians. It says that she was teaching, so appealing to people's minds, and that she was seducing, appealing to people's hearts or passions. Minds and hearts. Remember that for later on. But I'm certain if this woman was teaching the equivalent in the church today, her message would seem very attractive to many Christians, many of us even. She'd be on this conference circuit. She'd be selling millions of books. She'd be crushing it on YouTube. But Jezebel's teaching was bad news. Jesus uses some really strong language to call her out here. He calls her Jezebel first. And then he, he gets angry that she was seducing my servants astray. Like, how dare you try to take my people away from me? 
And verse 24 actually labels her teaching, as we saw, the deep things of Satan. She was claiming to speak for God, but was actually speaking for the devil. We wonder who might be leading Christians astray like this today. And there are many. The teaching of of having both Jesus and otherworldly things sounds a lot like the prosperity teachers who say you should have both Jesus and wealth. The teaching of of moral compromise sounds a lot like those I mentioned last week who accommodate their faith to, to fit in with the sexual freedoms of all kinds today. Or who water down their mission in order to make it more amenable to culture. Or who say, you know, you can watch smut and it won't affect your walk with God. I can name a bunch of names right now, but I don't really care to draw extra attention to them. I mean, Jesus doesn't even use a real name here. But, I bet you'd be surprised as some of the people who preach compromise today. It's so deadly. As Danny Aiken warns, says sexual immorality and acts of idolatry in any culture are a big deal to God. God calls us to holiness, not harlotry. God calls us to spiritual fidelity, not spiritual adultery. God calls us to follow him, not follow the world. When the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. When the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. We must not waver in our faith in order to be popular, in order to seek pleasure, in order to turn a profit. Anyone who encourages compromise with the world's ways needs to be called to repentance. We shouldn't be called to to tolerance of them. That was Jesus' complaint about the church in Thyatira. They were tolerating compromise. Most of them may have even known that this woman's teaching was off base, but they were permitting it to go on. They weren't putting a stop to it. And so Jesus goes, I'll put a stop to it. Look with me in verse 21. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. (laughs) What? Don't miss the character of God here. Yes, he's intensely holy. All sin against a holy, infinite God deserves death and hell. Hence, why this Jezebel would be thrown or cast onto a bed of sickness as judgment. Much like, by the way, the Jezebel of old was thrown from a window to her doom as judgment. But notice, God's also incredibly patient 
and merciful, giving even people as corrupt as Jezebel time and opportunities to repent. Like I gave her time to repent. She was the one who outright refused to turn back to him. It was now too late for her. But it wasn't too late for everyone else yet. Did you see that? In verse 22, it says, I will throw into great, all those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Like, if they just repent, none of this has to happen. You can almost sense Jesus saying it with tears in his eyes. We still think, well, what in the world was that about children dying? This is not speaking of literal children, but of spiritual offspring. As one scholar says, those who share her nature, her DNA. To kill really just meant turning them over to the destruction that they deserved. And if you still have a problem with that, as it's easy to do, that usually just reveals that you don't think sin is really that serious to deserve God's judgment. Yet it is. It's easy for us, I think, to look in on Thyatira from the outside and to judge Jezebel and her followers for doing this. It's, it's not so easy for us to allow God's word to shine into and expose sin in our own hearts. We all deserve to suffer the same fate unless we repent. Unless we repent, turning from our sins. So have you have you repented? Do not count the Lord's slowness to judge as indifference. Count it as merciful patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's his heart. And yet, as the verses right after that remind us, nevertheless, judgment will still come one day for those who refuse. But I want you to especially note here in Revelation 2 is Jesus' motive in judgment. Like on one level, his goal is clearly our repentance. So again, correction, not condemnation. But notice another motive in verse 23. What he wants to come of all this. Okay, he says, I'll strike your children dead. Next sentence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. See, Jesus' chief goal is always rightly God's reputation and glory. And think about it. He's been saying, I know you. I know your works. Now it's like he goes, now it's time for you to know me, to know what I do. And who is he? All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now remember, Jezebel appealed to what? People's minds and hearts. Now Jesus goes, I'm the one who sees into and searches 
mind, and heart. I know exactly what's going on inside your minds and hearts. And this is what he does with his eyes like a flame of fire. He searches us out. Do you find this scary at all? That Jesus sees and knows the deepest recesses of your heart? I think it should greatly alarm you if you haven't turned to him, receiving his mercy. But if Jesus has cleansed your heart, this truth should amaze you more than anything. Yes, it should increase our fear of the Lord, but not a dread of the Lord. As Chris Tomlin sings in one of his songs, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. When Jesus says that he'll give to everyone according to your works there, he's not ignoring grace. He's not saying that we're saved by works or anything like that. He's just stating the frequent biblical theme that we are judged based on our works, on what we do. And he honors our, our moral choices, he respects the decisions we make, and then we have to live with the consequences. For the unsaved, our works will always be found wanting. But if we trust in Christ, we'll be judged based on his works. And at the same time, he'll graciously reward any good works we do do for him. He doesn't need to do that, but he does. Like 1 Peter 1.17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Reverent fear. In verse 24 and 25, Jesus returns, like we saw, to addressing the faithful people in Thyatira. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And again, we see that Jesus' heart is not to lay some heavy burden on us. If we're being faithful, he just wants us to hold on to what he's already given us us. It wouldn't prove easy, but it would prove to be so worth it. And as he does so with every letter, Jesus ends by challenging his church to overcome while holding out promises of eternal blessing. Okay, read with me. Verse 26 to the end. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we learn here? What do we hear? I think it's this. Christ speaks to challenge his church with the promise of powerful authority. 
Christ challenges his church to overcome, promising powerful, eternal authority as a reward. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. If we're victorious in staying faithful and keeping the church faithful, and by the way, Jesus will keep all his true followers faithful until the end, but this is what we can count on receiving from our faithful Father one day. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Think about it. Little insignificant Thyatira would help Jesus rule the world. This is a shocking reward. Because only Jesus is the rightful ruler. Look at verse 27, he says, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. You see, in Psalm 2, God's messianic king is promised there. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you see? This was a promise that was meant not just for anyone, but for Jesus. This is a promise given to Jesus, and the, the Son of God would rule and judge the nations forever. Now Jesus says, I'm going to share that responsibility, that position, that glory with you. You're going to hold my rod of iron, my own rod of iron, like a scepter. And when wicked nations need judged, you'll help bring the hammer down. Now, that second part might not sound great to you. But I guarantee you that you'll feel differently then. Once we get a taste of what God sees, what God knows, and how deserving of justice people are. And you've heard all the protests the last couple of weeks clamoring for justice. It's because our world needs justice. We know things aren't right without it. Well, our God defines justice. And one day he'll bring it. Perfectly, righteously, and fully. And incredibly we'll get to play some undefined part in carrying that out. For now, we cry out for God's mercy. But one day, we will cry out for his justice. And the nations who oppose God's people will ultimately be shattered by them. I like the message's paraphrase here. It says, your shepherd king rule will be as firm as an iron staff, their resistance fragile as clay pots. This was the gift my father gave me. I pass it along 
to you. And Daryl Johnson puts the pieces all together, saying, What a promise! Those who belong to him will rule with him. Why then give in to the pressure to compromise? Why let other lords usurp Jesus' place in our lives? Why fear those powers or forces or persons over whom Jesus has the last word? Those who willfully submit to the rule of Jesus in this age will rule with him in the age to come. Why then compromise our allegiance to him? Indeed, that is the question we should ask whenever we are tempted to compromise. Like, what does this compromise truly offer me? What is it promising me? What do I get from it? And can it compare with this promise? Truly, nothing compares to the promise we have in Christ. And if that extravagant promise wasn't enough, Jesus offers Thyatira a second one. In verse 28, says, And I will give him the morning star. Now, last year, the International Astronomical Union held a global contest to name 100 stars. That'd be so cool, right? To get a name a star in the sky. How about owning one? Now, get this. A simple Google search turns up a, a whack load of websites that offer you the ability to buy a star. All for $29.99. You get to name the star along with an official looking certificate of ownership and a picture of your star in its galaxy. Now, even if your name goes into some, any actual official registry, you know it's a scam, right? That you don't actually own one square inch of real estate on that star. As if they could sell it to you anyway. And even if you did, you'd stand no chance of ever visiting your star. You probably won't even find it in a telescope. But here's the thing. Jesus promises us a star. And not just any star either. It's not a scam. He says, and I will give him the morning star. Now, no one is 100% positive what Jesus is referring to here, but we do have an inkling. The morning star in that day was usually a reference to the planet Venus, which Rome used as a symbol of a ruler's sovereignty and invincibility. They put it on all kinds of things, flags, banners, walls, whatever, to, to symbolize the sovereignty and invincibility. But in the Bible, the morning star is used several times to refer to Christ. In Numbers 24, 2 Peter 1, and perhaps most importantly, Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, where he declares, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. In other words, he's the king, the bright morning star. 
He's sovereign. He's invincible. He's bright and shining. Therefore, Jesus is offering the church to share in his glory and authority as the morning star. The, the, the final sovereignty and invincible power lays with him and his people. Is that incredible? So are you listening this morning? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to our church. God is speaking. The Father sent the Son and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. And now the Spirit is speaking to the churches in order to transform our lives as well. Jesus sees into your mind, into your heart today. His blazing fire eyes are looking our way. What does he see? What do you, what do you want him to see? What do you want changed? Or maybe what don't you want him to see? That's likely exactly what he needs to see. That, that may expose what we've been tolerating that we shouldn't have. Whatever his fire reveals in us today, know that his mercy blazes just as bright. So repent and run to Jesus. He is truly your and my only hope. Some of you might not want to listen today, afraid of what it might cost you. But I want you to get your eyes off of what it might cost you and onto what you can gain. That's what Jesus draws our attention to here. Like you'll gain everlasting and powerful authority and glory and honor and grace. And really, that's because you'll gain Jesus himself, the bright and morning star. And now he's all you could ever need. So awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, were you to count our sins, how could we ever come before your throne? And yet your forgiveness meets our gaze. And we stand redeemed in Christ alone. And we come before you today, and as you see our hearts, you know what needs changed. You see our minds. You know our, our thoughts. Lord, would your spirit breathe your word into us and keep speaking it to us, Keep drawing us to yourself today and every day as we go from here. Change us, we pray. Purify us.
purify our church. Lord, you are so good. And we ask you this for this now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.